0: This is an ABC podcast,
1: Countrywide on ABC Radio.
2: Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will.
3: We've seen the whole agricultural community
4: come
2: out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide.
4: Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing
2: businesses.
5: Get out there and speak to
4: farmers today.
1: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
0: Hello and welcome back to the first episode of Countrywide for the year. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. It's great to be back. In just a tick, we've got some breaking news, sort of, a bit of a development. Some good news for Aussie beekeepers who've been battling varroa mite.
5: There's no traces, there's nothing at all, so
0: it's a clean zone that we
5: can work in.
0: That story in just a tick. Also, it's not unusual to see food prices going up recently. But if you're a regular chip eater, you may have had a rude shock.
6: Especially at a sports burger bar, which every meal that we sell has chips. It'd be kind of what else could I do?
0: The great spud shortage and how it's impacting hot chips just around the corner. But first, since we've been gone, it has been one hell of a wet season for northern Australia. Just last week, towns in North Queensland copped more than a metre of rain in just one week. And at least one West Aussie driver has taken a near 5,000 kilometre detour to skirt around an inland sea that's formed during the state's worst ever flood disaster in the Kimberley. And that's where we're going to start the show today. ABC Kimberley reporter Ted O'Connor joins me on the line from Kununurra. G'day, kid. You're in the part of WA that's essentially been cut off by this huge inland sea, which has been caused by the floods. Just for people listening at home, could you explain where Kununurra is and the detours that this uh, crazy weather event has created?
7: Kununurra is the main hub for the East Kimberley. Uh, It's a town of about 5,000 people, but it can swell to... A lot bigger than that, when um, because there's a lot of transient Indigenous communities. Um, it's also it can also swell to that because of tourism. Uh, it just it just lies um, near the border with in Northern Territory on the WA side, and it is also home to the Ord Valley, which is a two dam irrigated um, agriculture sector which um, grows a lot of fruit and vegetables. Uh, now, what happened was in these floods, is the Fitzroy River Bridge um, was Extensively damaged, um, it's collapsed in one part, and also um, to further west, um, much of the Great Northern Highway washed away in one section. Now, there's only one sealed road through the Kimberley, um, so this is just a huge blow for the region, and um, that means that people simply can't drive from Kununara to Broome at the moment, because the Gib River Road is essentially down all of wet season. So that means that um, if you want to get something from Perth, it has to be trucked all the way across to Port Augusta um, in South Australia, north of Adelaide, and then all the way up through the middle of Australia to Catherine and then through to Kununara. So that's thousands and thousands of extra kilometres journey, which is just a huge, um, huge just detour uh, for people to simply get goods to the region.
0: And just to put it in a bit of perspective, if you were to drive across the country, Sydney to Perth, it's just, I think, a tick under 4,000 kilometres. So this is mind-boggling. It's staggering. What sort of knock-on effect have these giant detours had on uh, goods coming into town and prices and and just getting business done?
7: Well, it had been a tough year for freight increases already. By virtue of living remote, freight bills are high, in the last year, because of inflation, they jumped up 7 to 10%. We were doing stories with businesses saying, we're getting really squeezed here. And then when the floods happened, the bills in the mail this week were, you know, your freight bills going to double. Now, there are subsidies in place, but that's only for people importing goods that are deemed essential. So your fruit and vegetables into supermarkets here. There's talk of white goods, um, you know, potentially um, if you're a mechanic, um, but that's all that it to the discretion of a bureaucrat to decide what's essential. However, if you're a farmer sending goods down to a market in Perth, uh, you're not available. You're not eligible for the subsidy. And there was one orchard here who was sending down things like pawpaws and limes, and he was looking at not sending his fruit at all because it just the margins, um, just, there's just no money to be made. So I had to be really careful about what he sent and, and what he didn't. So. Um, luckily some producers um, don't typically send their stuff to market until a bit later in the year but for those um, other but there are some that would be sending them to market now and when your freight bills doubled um, it really makes it difficult to make money so they're going to have tough choices of whether they just sell their you know crop at all and Perth is such a large market for the East Kimberley Uh, normally we just go down the West Australian coast at a much shorter trip.
0: It's a really hard decision and I think one of the really heartbreaking images that came out of the floods for everyone uh, watching on the telly were cattle being uh, swept away in waters. Do you have any idea how the pastoralists in the Kimberley have fared now that uh, there's been a few weeks to sort of uh, take stock of what happened?
7: Yes, it's been really tough. Uh, we don't really have accurate stock losses, um, numbers on stock losses, and we will never really get them likely um, because. You don't really get good numbers until must has happened. So we can really say that, you know, it'd be the, into the thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of stock losses for those cattle stations that, have, that hugged the Fitzroy River and also in other parts that flooded up near Mount Barnett. Um, there was a lot of stock. Uh, people have reported huge numbers of dead stock, even just Indigenous communities, um, dead stock lying around in Fitzroy Crossing, even dead stock that have washed all, out, all the way out through the Fitzroy River to the Derby Port. Uh, so this is um, this is really this is really hard for people, mm. um, and it's just we, just not having that those accurate numbers. It'll be just really probably see the really true picture when the economic hit really starts to hit those cattle stations through that region over the months, and they think into the years ahead as well.
0: Mm. And even uh, those who probably managed to get stock to higher ground, I imagine that they're not going anywhere anyway.
7: Yes, that's right. And just on your question of just how you know people are going um, just as far as, you know, resilience and, you know, the the people's resilience here and how they're faring. It's important to know that this region, many people say they're still recovering from when the live um, cattle trade ban happened, I think over a decade now. That was devastating to the region up here. Um, Already margins um, are quite thin um, for people just trying to get cattle to market. So it's a tough place to Kimberley um, in general just to try and make everything work at an ec- at an economic level. And people might, you know, look at the Kimberley and say the cattle stations that are owned by, you know, you largely owned by your big corporates like Gina Reinhart and Twiggy Forest. Um, but there is a lot of cattle stations that are now indigenous run as well. There's a lot of family run ones as well. So there they do provide important important employment um, for Indigenous people in many of these towns um, as well. So they do they are a sort of pretty large part of the social fabric. So to have a blow like this when a large chunk of cattle stations in the Kimberley have been really hit by these, hard by these floods will be very difficult for the region.
0: Yeah, and we got a lot of those stories in the class action about how people had been affected by the Livex ban, didn't we?
7: That's right, yes.
0: Well, I think, yeah, resilience is the right word. How are spirits at the moment?
7: Uh, yes, they so certainly are. Uh, there's been um, just some of the stories about... People who've lost uh, their homes or had their homes completely, you know, gutted beyond repair um, by the floods have been some of the main people, you know, front line volunteering, just just going above and beyond day after day for people, which is pretty pretty heartening to hear. The other aspect, as well, just on the cattle stations, that's really going to impact things. Is one of the main abattoirs near Broome, Kimberley Meat Company. That abattoir um, will now be cut off to producers through the Fitzroy Valley because of the um, because of road. Um, is destroyed just near Air. So that abattoir won't be able to get cattle in um, potentially for well over a month, um, possibly more, because they've got to build a sidetrack around this road. But because it's wet season, um, any sort of um, building that goes on, it can be largely interrupted by the weather. And then those um, producers in Broome, um, if this abattoir um, and this abattoir itself was damaged as well. So those producers in Broome need have to access markets over the east um, say, in somewhere like Darwin or Wyndham, um, they're going to have trouble because the bridge is down and it could take a while to get a temporary bridge in place there as well. So this is just a whole other complication to what's
0: going on. Mm. Well, definitely a long road to recovery and our thoughts are with everyone up in the Kimberley. Uh, it's not easy. It's yeah, not an easy place to live and make a living. Thank you so much. Thank you. ABC East Kimberley reporter Ted O'Connor speaking to me there. And sticking with the weather but moving to the east coast and the big wet is wreaking havoc with one of North Queensland's favourite exports. Of course, I'm talking about mangoes. Australia's largest grower of Kensington Pride mangoes says harvest has been delayed because of severe rainfall. Mambaloo Limited has seven mango farms across Australia with two in the NT and five in Queensland near Townsville and the Atherton Tablelands. Kensington Pride and R2E2 are the main varieties the company grow, but they also harvest late varieties to fill market gaps. Managing Director Marie Picconi says the current rainfall hasn't devastated the crop, but it will have a financial impact.
4: Well, we've actually had to take, in terms of this, just this last out of rainfall we're in the middle of harvesting palmers and we're about to harvest keat in the next couple of weeks so we've um we've just had to delay some of the harvest but at this point it hasn't uh it hasn't ruined the crop we've maybe lost a couple of percent of the crop and perhaps our pack out of premium is slightly down Um, compared to usual numbers but the rainfall before Christmas and during December did have an impact on our R2E2 and Kensington Pride crop because it caused a lot more lenticel spotting which is not favoured by our customers. So at this point we're managing the rain, we're hoping to still get our crop off and maintain our quality but a lot's gone into that over the last you know six to nine months to make sure that we can we can cope with this you know we've made sure that the nutrient content in the fruit should be okay for these sort of extreme conditions our um, disease management programs in place our weed management programs in place all those things so it's not just about the past four days it's about so many other things that have been happening
0: this time of year when you know the wet starts to kick off a mango grower's just prepared for rain and they've just got to understand that this is part and parcel of operating in north and far north Queensland?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, some, some years, we would probably call them the, the easy, lucky years. We don't have, we don't have uh, very much rainfall during the, the harvest until the end in mid-March. But most years, we'd have to expect that we've got to cope with this and, um, and I, think, I think it's a normal part of mango production in North Queensland. And it means that um, occasionally we don't get the whole crop off and it means that the pack out's lower. Um, but we, we have to have strategies and management procedures in place to cope with it.
0: Some people in far North Queensland are saying that this is devastating and it's ended their season. Um, I'm hearing a lot more optimism in your voice. So why do you think that is?
4: Well, I, I think that, you know, the things that could be devastating in end of the season is if it, the rainfall is so constant that there's no opportunity to go out and harvest when it's not raining or there's, you know, disease present in the fruit as it goes through the supply chain. So we're trying to manage both of those issues and work with our customers. We work really closely with our customers about specifications and um, timing of our harvest and everything to just make sure we can get through it and get through it together. Because remember, they they want our fruit as much as we want to as we we want to harvest it. So uh, um, I think we've done a fair bit of a fair bit of planning and and a bit of budgeting to accept that sometimes you don't get the whole crop and sometimes nature is a bit cruel.
0: And do you think with that rain that you had late last year and that bit of rain now, do you think there'll be any financial impact?
4: Absolutely, yeah. We've had financial impact because we've downgraded some of the fruit that was probably that was definitely looking premium on the trees, and then once we had too much rainfall, we had defects and blemishes on it that meant that it had to be downgraded and sent off either for pre-packing or for um, value add. Yeah, no, definitely from our perspective in our business we take that into account that not every day or every month or every year can be you know lucky and easy and perfect.
0: Marie Picconi, Managing Director of Manbaloo Limited, speaking there with Lucy Cooper. You're listening to Countrywide, I'm Kit Mocken.
6: From the top
1: end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio.
0: Chinese trade issues have dominated headlines for years, and from time to time, so has the issue of Chinese foreign ownership in Australia. But what is China's long game when it comes to agriculture? Is it trying to dominate world markets or just feed its own people? One man who knows the beef industry inside out, both in Australia and in China, is Professor Ben Lyon. He is an associate from the University of Southern Queensland. He also grew up on a beef property and spent about 18 years living and working in China. So he knows a bit about what he's talking about. He told David Claughton a lot of China's agricultural policy is about reasserting its place in the world.
2: This is a very important narrative for the Chinese Communist Party um, and particularly its narrative back to its people as not only protecting its people, but also the status of the Chinese nation in the in the eyes of the world, and having a bigger say in the world affairs. They they probably feel that they've they've matured, particularly in the last twenty years, on a technology and um, individual wealth front. Um, so they're spreading their wings, but also. Just strategically, China, um, in terms of feeding and maintaining lifestyle and it's increasing and um, improving middle class, it needs more resources, whether it's food, infrastructure, steel, iron, or energy. So to, to maintain that level of lifestyle that it's starting to create, and we've seen the biggest in human history, the biggest movement out of poverty not as recent human history, but ever. So to maintain that momentum of economic growth, it needs resources. And that's where China's been flexing that strategic muscle. And that's where Australia has been a bit of a... Um, that saying, you know, they, they have a Chinese saying, they have an aphorism for everything, but, you know, you, you kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Australia has been a little bit of a chicken in the last few years. And we've stood up quite well, to be honest. But unfortunately for a lot of our um, listeners, you know... A few beef processes, um, some of our coal exporters and others and particularly our wine industry have been the victim of that um, that, that Chinese strategy.
1: So China does have like a centralised planning process, don't they? They have like a central document that comes out. Agriculture is a big part of that and their primary concern as far as my reading of that document is about feeding their own people. Would would that be right?
2: Yeah. So China's always been about, um, remember that, you know, and it could be, decades and hundreds of years of sort of chaos before the rise of the Communist Party in 1949, um, that communist revolution was very different to Russia's and that was surrounding the cities by the countryside. So it was a rural-based communist revolution. China at that stage was 85% rural. It's now less than 50% in terms of its rural population, but it's still a very important part of their power base. And agriculture and maintaining the viability of their agricultural sector and food supply and food security is a very big issue in the last 50 years or more in Chinese history.
1: And in terms of beef, they are a very big producer of of beef now, aren't they? But they've had trouble maintaining that.
2: We've studied the beef, Chinese beef industry since the 1990s to get an understanding of their domestic production. Their domestic production is not at a scale, it's much more at a smaller household level It's very challenged by logistics and also processing. Um, Both sheep and meat are are widely consumed in China, but pork is the mainstay. More recent developments have seen things like the African swine flu challenge that pork sector or be a threat to pork sector, Um, but also more affluent sort of lifestyles, particularly in Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities, have seen increased income. Look at Australian and other um, sorts of, of beef as a luxury product eating out in restaurants, so food and beverage like my... Work colleagues who were typically sort of in their early 30s, females and professionals in Shanghai, love going and spending up to $100 each on an Australian steak at a premium restaurant. And that was not happening in the early 2000s, but in the last 10 years, it's been an increasing trend. So we've benefited from that. And that's where that um, affluent Chinese consumer has really influenced and become our biggest destination of Australian premium beef. Well, we
1: saw an example recently of a Chinese company in Australia buying Wagyu heifers, paying the most, the, the biggest price ever for Wagyu heifers, $400,000 I think it was. Is that about them getting the genetics back to China so they can improve their herd?
2: Yeah, it's very much so. That's uh, that's a, always about producing their own and having that supply chain uh, or sovereign capability. Um, the The... Real facts are that China is very limited in how it can um, produce a premium quality, either whether it be a dairy product or even a wine product, based on climate availability of the right land. Um, they can, they're very big producers of beef um, and other ag products because of their domestic market, but there is a limit to that capacity on the premium end. Um, but yes, you will, that that affluent Chinese consumer will do, is, the, is the driver of that $400,000 Wagyu heifer.
1: So is there anything to fear in terms of that technology transfer or that direct you know, exporting of product from Chinese-owned properties in Australia to China? Are we being cut out somehow? Are we being used?
2: Well, I think value-adding agriculture and, and extracting the strongest value or the higher value um, is always a challenge in any market export market. We export 70% of what we produce in agriculture. Um, getting away from being dig and deliver is a big cultural thing for us as Australians. I think that on your question around the Chinese and the xenophobic thing, yeah, we do tend to overreact to some of those things, but I'd also be wary. There are some very strong links in some of these Chinese investments back to the central government, and they are under a strong coercion um, potential from Beijing. So I think it is does pay to be wary with Chinese investment, particularly in some strategic We do that with all foreign investment. Our foreign investment review board, the protocols are quite strong, whether it's China or any nation. So I think if we just treat them as we treat every other nation, we will be fine. There's no, We're not targeting China in any way. And I think that's a very pragmatic and mature outcome.
1: Mm. I mean, our protocols are quite strong. We've toughened up the the FERB stuff. But Australians can't buy land in China. And (laughs) there was a lot of angst about Australia demanding that Chinese be tested for COVID when they came here, but but Australians have to be tested before they go into China. It's it's you know the policies in reverse are far stronger than our own.
2: Yeah, that's that's part of the uh, part of the diplomatic tussle, I suppose. I mean, there's a lot been a lot of irrational Chinese sort of edicts. If you look at the live cattle market back to, you know recent times, the blue tongue line that goes sort of, sort of diagonally across Australia from north to to the south, and um, we don't have blue tongue. Um, we have the vector, but um, that's... And in the wool industry, you know, we length and strength test our wool objectively. In China, they do it with a steel ruler. So there's always these conflicts around that thing and ways of doing things differently. It's, uh, it is a challenge.
0: Professor Ben Lyons speaking to David Claughton about China's agricultural policy.
2: From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio
0: like there hasn't been much good news for beekeepers who've been battling varroa mite in New South Wales, but soon some beekeepers from a large part of the state will be able to move their bees across state borders. All states and territories have agreed to declare the blue zone in New South Wales varroa mite free. So what is the blue zone? Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Aperists Association explains. There's nothing being found in the
5: blue zone. So we we say that's a clean area. So that when nothing's been detected in an area, we keep it as a blue zone or a green zone, whatever, clean. And it's um, there's no traces, there's nothing at all. So it's a clean zone that we can work in.
1: Right. So if, if beekeepers, and this includes beekeepers from other states who've been locked into New South Wales effectively, if they've got bees in the blue zone, they can now move across state borders or is there still some steps to be to be to be completed here?
5: Yes. So need to still do surveillance. They still need to um apply for permits and traceability is a must in case something is detected later on. So they've got to abide by whatever's put in place. So if the government says or DBI says that we can do this under a permit, then do everything, do your washes, um, make sure you report anything unusual, and this way we can maintain our clean bill of health.
1: Right. And how many beekeepers do you think would be affected by this change? How many have been stuck in New South Wales, unable to move their bees out?
5: Um, I'm not real sure on the actual figures, but I know there's been numerous ones because when you live close to a border, the borders only a sort of a drawing on a map. And um with a beekeeper you can go across a river and, and so on. So there's been a fair few people that have been stuck.
1: One element of this is a bit confusing because only this week we were hearing a lot of concern. In fact, we've been hearing it for some weeks now, but the New South Wales Authority said we're going to start auditing beekeepers because we're not getting enough test results to see whether there is varroa around the state, whether it's in Queensland or Victoria, but particularly in New South Wales. Why the sudden change of heart when those test results aren't in?
5: Uh, Because of all the publicity, people have jumped on board and started reporting the uh, information they had. Uh, A lot of people didn't realise They had to report. They knew they had to do the alcohol washes, but they didn't realise they had to report. And when that information or that data has been conveyed through, we can show that there's been a lot of surveillance and nothing's turning up.
1: Would you say the industry is almost back to normal then with this announcement?
5: No. No, we've got a long way to go yet. And this is don't let your guard down. This is where uh, if you're going to become commonplace then you will find that if if we have missed it, it could bite us on the rear end real quick.
0: Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apiarists Association. So just repeating the news, beekeepers can move hives from the New South Wales blue zone to other states, but it still has to work out some conditions. I would check for details before you do anything. You're listening to Countrywide.
1: What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming.
0: You've probably heard by now that Australia is in the midst of a potato chip shortage. It's been foreshadowed for some time, but pubs and fish and chip shops say it's now really starting to bite. Sorry, I had to sneak that one in. Some businesses have resorted to making their own chips and Woolworths says the crunch is now affecting supermarket prices. Here's national regional reporter Eliza Borello.
3: Making chips from scratch, even with a chipping machine, is a slow process. But it's the only way Perth burger bar owner Matt Graham-Hellwig can keep them on the menu.
6: We started doing this on Friday, just Friday. The last Friday, last week. So I'm actually loading the potatoes into the machine so then they will get cut and put straight into the tub. And then we soak them for a few hours. And then we have to like half fry them and then fry them again. And then they're actually ready to go. So we have to, we have to do it this way now because we can't get any chips.
3: It's taking up to 20 hours of his working week. But Matt Graham-Helwig says it would be almost impossible to open if he didn't.
6: Especially at the sports burger bar, which every meal that we sell has chips. It'd be kind of like, what else could I do? Uh, wedges are too expensive, sweet potato chips are too expensive and you can't have onion rings or anything like that so it goes with everything that we sell, so we have to.
3: Harry Stevens runs a business making potato crisps in Port Melbourne and he's been hit by the potato shortage this month too.
6: Demand for chappies at the moment is at an all-time high um, and we just don't have enough supply to meet it. It could take up to a month to sort of get back to having a supplier there to supply our customers.
3: The chip crunch is thanks to a perfect storm hitting the global potato industry. Michael Coote from the industry body OzVeg says droughts in Europe and the United States have restricted supplies of imported potato products. And local chip producers have struggled because of wet conditions in key Australian chipping potato growing regions.
2: Some of those um, adverse weather events that, that impacted northern Tasmania and, and particularly Ballarat region in Late 21 and early 22.
3: He's hopeful potato crops currently in the ground will eventually ease the shortage.
2: Potato crops, they don't grow and aren't harvested as quickly as some other fresh vegetables. And so it will take a couple of months before I think um, we're really seeing supply loosening up.
3: Woolworths has confirmed there's now pressure on supermarket chip prices, while Coles is continuing to restrict purchases of frozen chip bags to two per customer. Back at Matt Graham Helwig's Burger Bar, there's been an upside of sorts to the shortage. He's decided his house-made chips are cheaper and will be staying on the menu.
6: And these chips do taste better and they're local, it's easier to get. You know you're going to get it. You're going to get the same chip every time, not compared to what we we're getting the last 5 months. So, we're going to stick I think we'll just stick to this.
0: Perth Burger Bar owner Matt Graham Helwig doing some very important work there in Perth. He was ending that report by Eliza Borello. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. It's been great to have your company. I'm your host, Kit Mockin. Bye for now. This is an ABC podcast.